I'm Sandy Swallow. I'm Okalala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. I've been an artist for over 30 years and through my artwork have portrayed my heritage. Now I'm starting a brand new venture called Lakota Link and I'm here to share with you and I hope you enjoy it. Lakota Link. Greetings from the home of the Seven Council Fires land of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties, bringing stories old and new of Lakota values, courage, respect, wisdom, to name a few. Well, hi, Mario. How are you today? I am doing fine. Well, good. I'm so glad you just you're willing to come on and do a second segment because really you have such a rich history that we didn't even, you know, get to it hardly. And so what did what uh was your first job as a lawyer? When I well, when I was in law school, I really wanted to become a pro bono lawyer. I aspired to become a pro bono lawyer. I was watching uh, Nader's Raiders, you know, the things they were doing, Ralph Nader's mm-hmm. group, uh, William, uh, William Janklow, I was watching him, and he was doing uh, pro bono work, working with legal services. And, you know, he got the, uh, they brought a lawsuit, and they got the city a winner, I think it was, to uh, provide services to the Indian community there, you know, like sewage and that sort of thing. And so I was inspired uh, by uh, people like uh, Ralph Nader, William Janklow at the time, and others. And so that's what I wanted to do, can, go back to can the you, reservation. Yeah, can you explain for my listeners who word pro bono means? That means that you just go out and provide services, uh uh, for free, I guess. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, I wanted to go back and um, to Pine Ridge and do pro bono work for uh, the people. And so I applied for what's called a Reggie grant from Harvard University. It was a $10,000 grant that would enable you to go back and do pro bono work uh, in some location, a reservation or some other location. So I was accepted, and I got a $10,000 grant. And so I came back to Pine Ridge after graduation and went to work for Oglala Sioux Legal Services. And I got paid through the Reggie program. This is um, 1972. In the fall of 72, of course, we had uh, um, the American Indian Movement had uh, occupied the BILs in, um, in Washington, D.C., and there was uh, a lot of concern. They were coming back to South Dakota. and So at some point, they... Uh, they uh, stopped the legal services program at Pine Ridge, um, not completely, but stopped it. So uh, the the my my supervisors were Mark Meyer Henry. I can't remember a Rosebud Legal Services. I think at the time, he later became Attorney General of South Dakota. So Mark Mark was going to sign me up to uh, Cheyenne River, and I decided that I didn't want to go up there. I want to stay in Pine Ridge. So um, I I just stayed at Pine Ridge and. I, you know, I eventually applied uh, to the American Indian Lawyer Tra- Training Program out of uh, Oakland, California, for a uh, 
a fellowship, a grant, 1975, and I, I was one of four recipients of the grant. And they had a grant from the Lilly Foundation to set up uh, at least four lawyers in private practice, and I was one of them. So I opened up a law office in Martin, South Dakota, 1975, and ran it till 78. And then in 78, I got a contract with the Oglala Sioux Tribe as an attorney, and I worked for the tribe from 78 to 88 as an attorney. And um, that, because I had gotten experience uh, doing court appointments at Martin for three years, criminal appointments and other experience in court, um, when the Black Hills case came along, I, I was already out of law school eight years, had litigation experience, and so that's why I was able to step in and file the lawsuit to stop the payment of the Black Hills. So I was ready working for the tribe, 1980. Well, Mario, this is so interesting and fascinating, and I am so thankful that you're willing to come on to Lakota Link and share some of your, you know, your family history. And and I think it's always interesting to find out how people get where they ultimately are in life be a little share a little bit more about um, the treaties because uh, I I would like people to understand Mario is probably one of the most expert knowledge on on the treaties that you know get to it hardly and I would like to kind of go back to your career as a as a lawyer, and um, I got to tell you this: as an artist, I I imagine things. You know, I'm visual, and we Wayne and I have a beautiful deck on our home, and we can overlook Spearfish. And but behind us, it what was about two hundred acres when we first came here, and built our home here, and there there was horses that would run and it was so pretty and then eventually that was sold the horses were gone and now there's plots of five to eight acres and their home sites beautiful home sites so when we sit on our deck right behind us right now is a house that's being built and it's going to be a beautiful home and I think in terms of a home, because we've been watching this going on for the last couple of months, and how there's has to be a very good, firm foundation for that home to withstand the elements and to be a strong home for a family. And so I would like you to explain how you feel the foundation of the treaties first started with what treaty it was and why you think that that created the foundation that that we now are dealing with. Okay. Well, our first treaty, uh, the Oglala Sioux Treaty, was uh, 1825. And uh, you have to go back a little further to the War of 1812 between the United States and the British. And so there was a chief named Juaneta, a Sioux chief. He is a Yanktonay. 
And he went and fought on the side of the British against the United States. And was as far as uh, uh, you know, Ohio, uh, fighting, uh, fighting uh, for the British on the part of the United States. At some point, he switched, and he started fighting the uh, British on behalf of the United States. So he started out fighting the United States on behalf of the British, and he switched. He started fighting the British for the United States, and he was all he he went all the way to Ohio fighting. And then eventually the War of 1812 was over, and he came back to um, what is now probably South Dakota. And so this Yankton chief was very famous back then, Juanetta. And uh, later there was a, a series of treaties, 1825 treaties, that basically I think was a result of the War of 1812. So they came uh, out, and uh, the United States uh, commissioners came out and negotiated uh, some of these treaties with the Sioux tribes and other tribes. And one treaty was the 1825 treaty with the uh, uh, Sioni and the Oglala bands. Now, who are the Sioni? Well, the Sioni are the Cuthead Yanktonay bands which currently reside on Sandy Rock Reservation and perhaps, you know, a few of them are on other reservations. Okay. So the, the, so the Sioni or the Cuthead uh, Yankton and of course the Oglalas uh, had their chief, sir, in 18, uh, 1825. I think, if I remember right, they called it the Atchison O'Fallon Commission that negotiated those treaties. But the treaties laid the foundation, the relationship between the United States and the Oglalsu tribe and the Cutheads. And the treaty basically said that uh, the uh, United States would take the uh, Oglala tribe, uh, the Cuthead band, and uh, under their protection. And the Oglala band and the Cuthead band agreed to come under the protection of the United States. It also allowed the president to start uh, uh, you know, providing um, Trade, or to trade intercourse with them, trading with uh, the bands and providing them with uh, benefits. So that was the first treaty. Now, there was other treaties that, uh, 1825, with the uh, other Sioux bands. Uh, the Rosebud, I think I had one with the... Uh, um, anyway, the Rosebud had, had a treaty. Uh, the others, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe had an 1825 treaty. And I think almost all of them had 1825 treaties. So that established a legal relationship between the Oglasu Band and the United States. And then uh, we come up to the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty. And in that treaty, uh, you have to look at U.S. policy, I believe. So uh, in the 1850s, uh, around 1850, uh, uh, Congress passed an act that uh, established a reservation policy to make Indians farmers and open up their lands for more uh, white immigration homesteading. So uh, the, the, as a result of those policies, we have uh, these treaties like the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, which is essentially established uh, a, you know, a territory for the Teton Sioux tribes. The 60 million acres in um, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, and Nebraska. Um, so that was a large area. Of course, the tribes had Aboriginal claims beyond those boundaries, but that was the treaty boundaries. 
1851 treaty boundaries, and it recognized uh, title ownership in in the uh, signatory tribes uh, under U.S. law under the Fifth Amendment. Uh, the other tribe that signed that treaty was the Yankton, not the Yankton A, but the Yankton Sioux tribe. So they were signatories to the 51 treaty area. So then uh, w- uh, what happened was uh, that well, there was a provision at the end of that treaty where it defined the areas of the various bands. It's a multilateral treaty with other tribes, the three affiliated tribes, the Crow tribes, uh, other tribes. But the Sioux tribes were in Article 5. At the bottom, it says that the Sioux uh, or the tribes would not uh, relinquish any claims they had, uh, you know, to, uh, for hunting and fishing. They had the right to cross over the territory of those other tribes and hunt. And so there was a saving clause in that uh, treaty that allowed uh, the tribes uh, certain rights under the, the areas that were uh, recognized as known, owned by these other uh, non-Sioux tribes. So uh, that was important. It uh, recognized a hunting right. It recognized a fishing right. It recognized, uh, you know, right to uh, travel in those other areas. So then uh, we have what's called the Powder River Wars, where uh, the there was gold discovered in the Bozeman, Montana area. So you had the Bozeman Trail going right through our 51 Treaty area. And that concerned uh, the uh, Sioux tribes because... Uh, they relied on buffalo, and uh, they were interfering with the buffalo migrations. When you have all these white people going down up and down the Bozeman Trail, I read where Red Cloud told the government that if they put the Bozeman Trail uh, west of the Bighorn Mountains, the Sioux would not go to war. But if they kept them east of the Bighorns, interfering with buffalo migrations and having all these uh, non-Indians come through. I don't think they were supposed to allow non-Indians to come through these territories, but they did. So the Sioux went to war, and uh, that's called the Potter River War of 1866 to 1868. And in the 1860s, after the Civil War, they had the peace period, the peace policy period. Uh, they had the 1866 treaties with the Oklahoma tribes after the Civil War, and I think the 68 treaty was probably a, a you know, a part of that uh, peace policy. So they came up into our country and uh, tried to make peace with the Sioux tribes and other tribes. And it culminated into the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty with uh, the, the Sioux bands. And uh, the 68 Treaty uh, was important because it uh, uh, recognized or created a 26 million acre reservation, essentially all of Western South Dakota, uh, west of the east bank of the Missouri River. So the Missouri River, um, you know, uh, bed uh, and uh, the, the shoreline to the east bank was part of the Great Sioux Reservation. And so uh, it's supposed to be for the absolute and undisturbed use and occupation of the Sioux bands, signatory Sioux bands. And that's supposed to be a permanent homeland. It was all of western South Dakota, including the Black Hills area, was the reservation. But later we find out that uh, the 1868 treaty became an instrument of fraud by the United States. And the reason I say that is that um, at the very end of Article 2, where the, it defines the Great Sioux Reservation, there was a provision there that said that uh, the Sioux tribes would uh, uh, henceforth, henceforth relinquish all claims 
uh, or right in into a, the portion of the United States or territories outside that uh, Great Sioux Reservation. And Sioux tribes never agreed to that. They were just stuck in that treaty. And then uh, you go up to Article 16, it says that all the territory around the Great Sioux Reservation, west of the Missouri River, would be um, unceded uh, Indian territory. And Article 11 says that uh, uh, that the Sioux uh, would, could occupy that area as long as there were buffalo there to justify the chase. And I might add that it was also the Crow area that would be unceded uh, Sioux hunting territory. Not ownership, but the right to hunt on it. So that went to the Bighorn Mountains up to the Yellowstone River. So the, when the, big, uh, the Battle of the Little, uh, Little Bighorn was uh, fought, uh, in 1876, um, uh, that was actually Crow territory under their 51 treaty area. And so, uh, but we had a right to hunt there under the 1868 treaty, uh, beyond our, uh, unceded territories up to the Bighorn Mountains and up to Yellowstone River. So we had the right to hunt. We were up there legally hunting on the Crow territory. Well, um, the uh, the, uh, the the tribes never agreed to cede any of the land, and so we get to the Indian Claims Commission, and when they're looking at uh, Docket 74, uh, the Indian Claims Commission uh, uh, rule ruled that the uh, the 1868 uh, treaty uh, that, that the Sioux tribes never agreed to sell any land under the 1868 treaty. We're considering offsets. And that the, the um, Sioux leaders, uh, I think it was Red Cloud, uh, said he would not sign that the 68 treaty if uh, the, tri- the tribes were giving up any land. Uh, Sitting Bull said he would not uh, agree to the treaty to give up any land. General Sanborn, who negotiated that treaty, said the Sioux would not be giving up any land in the treaty. There were also testimony, other evidence in the Indian Claims Commission on the question of all sets of other tribes that uh, chiefs that said we'd fight for the death before we would give up any land. So then what happened? The Indian Claims Commission comes out and say, ironically, even though the Sioux never agreed up to agreed to give up any land in the 68 Treaty, it amounted to a vast session of their territory, contrary to the understanding in, of the Sioux Indians. And they upheld it. And so, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the 68 Treaty was not, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, uh, well, the government allowed uh, the Indian Claims Commission to basically uh, take uh, thir- uh, see what would it be 34 million of acres of our land that we never agreed to sell and try to pay us for it. It was like 20 million dollars. But not only that, they also grabbed 14 million acres of our land east of the Missouri River, and that was non-treaty land, as Aboriginal title land. And they said that language in the 68 Treaty also included that, all land outside the Great Sioux Reservation. So they grabbed that land and pulled that in, and pay, uh, they were trying to pay $25 million for, for that. So it was basically uh, 48 million acres for uh, $45 million. And then the government said, well, we're entitled to an offset, about $3.7 million. So they knocked it down to around $40 million. And that's what the Sioux tribes are when I got involved, we're opposing that we didn't agree to, you know, cede this land and sell it. Um, the evidence is there. You even admit it in the Indian Claims Commission proceedings 
So uh, we're not, we don't want to be part of this problem. I, I got the council to pass two resolutions to withdraw from Docket 74. I said, we don't want to be part of this. And the, the court would not let us out. Uh, and um, basically, um, there was a cram down of that, uh, that award uh, on the Oglala Sioux Tribe. So those are important things that people really don't understand. And that's why we were rejecting that Docket 74 uh, claim, Docket 74A, um, and later was changed back to Docket 74. This is separate from the Black Hills. And then uh, I might add that that unceded area around uh, the the uh, Great Sioux Reservation, uh, in 1877, Congress unilaterally confiscated the Black Hills by Act of Congress in violation of the 68 Treaty, Article 12, which said that you need three-fourths of all male signatures to constitute a session. So uh, the Black Hills Act, Article 1, uh, basically confiscated the Black Hills and, and took it out of the Great Sioux Reservation, 7.3 million acres. But there's also a provision, a statement there, that says that... Uh, um, the Article 16 of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, the unceded area, is abrogated, and the hunting right is extinguished in that area. So basically, it was the Black Hills Act that opened all that land around the Great Sioux Reservation up to non-Indian homesteading in Article 1. Not only the government, did the government confiscate the Black Hills, but they also uh, took control, uh, abrogated Article 16 of the 68 Treaty, and opened up um, 34 million acres to non-Indian homesteading uh, around the Great Sioux Reservation. Can you know, getting back to that foundation of the of the first you know treaty, um, can you kind of explain to our the the idea that sovereignty of the Sioux nations? Well. Yeah, that the, the the sovereignty of Indian tribes is recognized by the Supreme Court in uh, the uh, Cherokee cases, Wooster versus Georgia, uh, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, uh, Johnson versus McIntosh. Uh, the trilogy uh, basically recognizes uh, the, tr- the tribal sovereignty, and so it's basically federal common law that recognizes uh, Indian sovereignty. And then also the U.S. Constitution uh, allows uh, Congress to regulate commerce with Indian tribes, uh, as well as states and foreign governments. So that recognizes sovereignty of Indian tribes. And then uh, the treaty-making clause, of course, they used, uh, it was nation-to-nation. And so uh, the United States uh, treaty-making clause, when they negotiated treaties and agreements, recognized sovereignty of Indian tribes. They treated them as separate sovereign nations, and and that's something uh, and, that and and, 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 and uh, oh go ahead. And that's something that has uh, even to this day. There's been, you know, a lot of people don't understand why the tribes are taking a certain stand on something and don't realize that they have the right to because they have the sovereignty to. Yes. Um, uh, the sovereignty of the tribes predates the sovereignty of the United States. They were sovereign before the United States was created. Uh, in uh, you know, 1876, 1889 was the date the Constitution was adopted, U.S. Constitution. But uh, the tribes are sovereign. 
many, many years previous to that. So tribal sovereignty predates uh, the creation of the United States, and the United States recognized it in, in its formative years and um, later to treaties, agreements, Act of Congress. And so uh, uh, there's also a case called the Winans case. There's a fishing case, a U.S. Supreme Court case, and it established a reserve rights doctrine. And basically that case says that uh, uh, all the rights come from the tribes to the United States and not vice versa. But whatever rights uh, the tribes have not granted to the United States, they reserve. And of course, um, uh, that includes uh, land rights, sovereignty, jurisdiction, uh, water rights. For my listeners, I I just uh, want them to know that Mario, for in his career, he has been involved in so many things that uh, ha- has to do with water rights and with um, just so much that we could talk about. But um, Mario, I certainly hope that you will come on again and we'll be able to talk about some of the more up-to-date things. And I do thank you so much for helping explain the treaties. For me, it's Treaties 101 because, I mean, as an artist, I was invited to to be in an exhibit on the Fort Laramie Treaty. So I did read up on all the articles. I think everybody well, it should. a little technical. Sure. Yeah, it gets a little technical sometimes. Yeah, but, uh, I think... Hopefully it... uh, we could explain it in more simplistic terms here, and so it'll, it's easier to understand. Sure. And, uh, Mario, uh, would you be willing to come on again sometime in the future? And uh, I, I hope so, because we've learned so much from you. And when, um, when I do my uh, show... Uh, Lakota link. I I like to give a value, a Lakota value to the the person that has been so kind to come on. And um, as my cousin uh, Billy Mills, I had a hard time keeping those values down because I, you know, it's like with you that I can think of so many values that you've had and and that. I would attribute to you, but certainly one would be the Lakota value of wisdom and that you've had throughout your career and throughout your life had to make some choices and ultimately thought of them. Uh, I can tell you've thought of them with a great deal of thought and, and used wisdom. And um, also I would say, the Lakota value of of perseverance that having achieved all this is not something that just immediately happens. You have to really have patience and perseverance to to get this done. So those would be a couple of the values that I would attribute to you. And I just thank you so much for being willing to come on. And I hope you will come on again. Well, yeah, in the future, I'll be happy to. All right. Well, thank you, Mario. You're welcome. Well, I hope you enjoyed our segment. You know, I I enjoy visiting with the people, 
And if you did, go to sandyswallowgallery.com where you can find my artwork and find some history and some background. Please subscribe to it or if you have some comments, we would love to hear your opinion. This is a new adventure for us and I value your opinion. This song is written and sung by my good friend, Quincy Goodstar. Lakota Link is here to share Lakota values. God bless you on your journey. Wopila, thank you for joining us.